Welcome to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. My guest today is the psychiatrist, philosopher, and literary scholar, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, an enormously creative and original mind, most famously the author of The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain in the Making of the Western World. I had the great pleasure of sitting down with Dr. McGilchrist in the spectacular and peaceful setting of his home on the Isle of Skye off the northwest coast of Scotland. Our conversation begins with a short summary of McGilchrist's account of the two hemispheres of our brain, then moves into a discussion of how that account of our neurological structure provides a powerful interpretation of our contemporary world. I was interested in McGilchrist because the questions at work in his analysis are rich and perennial ones, pertaining to the nature of meaning, the dynamic character of what is real and true, and perhaps above all, to how we come to discover ourselves as part of a larger whole, how somehow that whole is in us. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. I'm sitting here in the Isle of Skye, a place of spectacular and sublime beauty off the west coast of Scotland, with Dr. Ian McGilchrist in his study just on the edge of the Talisker Bay. Thank you so much for having me here today, Ian. I'm delighted that you could come, Stephen. Some of our listeners will be very familiar with your work. Others will be hearing about you and your work for the first time. I know it's a, it's an immensely big topic to ask uh, for a synopsis of, but could you sketch out just by way of introduction in as simple a way as possible the basic argument that you make about the hemispheres of the brain, uh, because so much of what we might talk about will go back to the way you describe their differences and you might say the opposition and the problems that can result from their opposition. So um, if you could give us a bit of an introduction to that for the sake of our listeners, and as a beginning point, that would be most wonderful. Well, it's okay. I mean, the first thing I have to say, really, is that uh, this is a topic that most people consider to be a pop psychology topic that's long ago been exploded. Um, And the advice I had when I began 25 years ago researching in this area was not to touch it with a barge pole because it was career death. Mm -hmm. But I'd come to medicine from a background in philosophy and literature, and I had some intriguing resonances between my interests in the humanities and what I learned about differences between the two brain hemispheres. And I started to find that it wasn't acceptable to say there just aren't any differences. First of all, why is the brain, which is only there to make connections, profoundly divided? Why is it asymmetrical uh, if it's just a matter of um, finding room for things in the brain? Why do it asymmetrically? And even more interestingly, why is the band of fibres that connects the brain at their base largely to do with inhibition? Now, those set up interesting questions about things that needed to be held together and things that needed to be kept apart at the same time. And I was fortunate enough to coincide with um, a, a colleague, John Cuttings, having produced a book on the right cerebral hemisphere and psychiatric disorders published by OUP in 1990. And 
I went to a lecture he gave and was completely amazed to hear some of the things he was saying because he hadn't been put off by people saying, oh, there's no difference, there's no difference. He'd actually sat down at the bedside of people who'd had right hemisphere tumours or strokes and found out what actually happened. And he found that when people had left hemisphere strokes, the world for them was intact, but their ability to use it was impaired. So the difficulty was with using the right hand to manipulate things and using speech in order to formulate it. But the actual business of experience wasn't radically changed. But when they had a right hemisphere stroke, the very fabric of the world changed. They lived in a different world. They couldn't understand or make sense of the things that had formerly made sense to them. And this had to do with their inability to understand anything that was not formulaic and explicit. If anything was implicit, the meaning of things that are not said as much as what are said, the meaning of how things are phrased, the tone of voice in which they're conveyed, the body language and facial expressions of the person speaking, all this is completely lost on the right, on, sorry, on the left hemisphere. And so they found it very difficult to understand ordinary human converse. They didn't understand what people were talking about. They took everything people said entirely literally. Now, that was a great interest to me because I felt we were moving into a world in which the richness of what is implicit, what is tacit, what is metaphorical was being driven out of life. Um, and I'd written a book, in fact, when I was um, at Oxford uh, teaching literature about um, this problem that people in creating works of art create something that's implicit and embodied and unique. And then we came along and turned it into something that was explicit, disembodied and general. And, and this just seemed to me fascinating that once our intellect mm. got to work on things, it started to change their nature. And I learned that this was one of the differences. Another was that, that the right hemisphere was much better able to understand the embodied nature of experience. The left hemisphere tended to abstract from experience and end up with something thoroughly cerebral, but not sufficiently in contact with the emotional part of our brain and bodies and with the meaning of embodied experience. And it was also the left hemisphere incapable of appreciating the unique. It, it, it saw everything as members of a category. And that struck me very forcibly. And there were, there were some really moving cases of people who had right hemisphere strokes. One was of a man who uh, was a farmer. And before the stroke, he knew all of his cattle by name. After the stroke, he could hardly tell a horse from a, from a cow. And another woman was a woman who made it her life's work to know all the birds in Switzerland. And after her right hemisphere stroke, she just said, all the birds are the same. Now, this actually is very important because what it means is that the, the right hemisphere is seeing one kind of a world and the left hemisphere is seeing a different kind of a world. And why this is, is something we can come on to talk about. But effectively, it, its root is in attention, that they attend to the world in two different ways. And when you attend to the world in a different way, you find different things in the world. You find a different world. So what I began to build up was a picture that we're always drawing on and needing the work of two forms 
of attention to the world, one provided by the left hemisphere, one provided by the right. The left hemisphere providing very localized, piecemeal attention to details which seem not connected to one another and would need to be put together in some way in order to make sense of them. And the right hemisphere keeping a broad, sustained, vigilant, open attention to the world in which nothing is separate from anything else. And so there's no problem of meaning. Well, how do you put these fragments together? Mm. Because they already are a seamless whole. So if I could summarize very briefly, the left hemisphere sees a world that is made of pieces that are distinct, that are static, that are general in nature and abstract and disembodied, taken out of context, and in effect rather like diagrams or representations of the world, something like a map as it relates to the reality that it maps. Meanwhile, the right hemisphere is seeing the reality, which is not fragmented but connected, that is not static but always seamlessly flowing and changing, that is not ever decontextualized because it's always part of a bigger whole which forms the context. And it's only through the context that you understand this bit that you've got hold of. You don't understand the whole by putting together parts. You understand at least as much the parts by seeing what kind of a whole they go to compose. And it also sees a world which is not one where we are detachedly observing things uh, abstractly forming schema of them, but are actually thrust there in the living world alongside them. And we're never... Uh, separate from them. We are never completely detached from them. That doesn't mean to say we can't stand back from them. I mean, in order to understand many things, you need a certain degree of distance from them, and both hemispheres can provide that. But the left hemisphere alone tends to see the world as a set of problem items on a tray that need to be put together to form something that will be of use, whereas the right hemisphere sees something that is already magnificently beyond our capability to understand that is living changing and an evocative whole, pregnant with meaning. So these are very different kinds of world. And in brief, in The Master and His Emissary, I spend the first half of the book looking at the neurology of this. So just making the case that actually from a couple of thousand, two and a half thousand studies that I, I cite, you can see that this actually is a distinction. And then saying, if that's so... Could these set up two different, each quite distinct, but each important and necessary ways of looking at the world? And that we normally draw on both. But that, that when we try to draw on them both, we find we come up with paradoxes. So we, we're, we're forced to choose between one or the other. And that in the modern world, we in every case seem to choose the model of the left hemisphere, the one that is effectively a machine, an, a, a structure that is put together by putting part upon part. We don't take the model of the thing that is uncertain, uh, never fully knowable, constantly evolving. And I thought that that was something significant about our 
civilization now. And in the second half of the book, I look very briefly at Western civilization, starting with the Greeks and the Romans, coming forward to our Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, Romanticism, the Industrial Revolution, Modernism and Postmodernism. And I trace the ways in which the balance between these two visions of the world has been either kept or lost over those periods of time. And my conclusion is that we now live in a period in which we have lost the balance in favour of the left hemisphere's model of the world, and that we did this twice before, and that in each case it presaged the downfall of a civilization. It happened at the end of the Greek civilization. It happened at the end of the Roman civilization. And then we went into what is called the Dark Ages for a thousand years. And we may not have a thousand years uh, after this particular downfall to recoup. So that's it in a nutshell. Thank you very much for that. It's a, it's a wonderfully helpful introduction. To tease this out, this, let's say this tension out a bit further, the title of the book, The Master and His Emissary, describes a process by which, and please correct me if I've got this wrong, a process by which the, the master is the right hemisphere, the emissary is the left, and the emissary is meant, as it were, to serve the bigger picture of the, uh, of the, of the master, but takes unto itself you might say, co-ops the whole in relation to the part that it sees. It reduces everything to the part that it sees to the end that it thinks that there is nothing other than that. So you have the co-option of the master by his own emissary. What kind of a world is it that the emissary or the left hemisphere sees? And if the left hemisphere is encouraged to or allowed to as it were, dominate the entirety, uh, what kind of a world does that produce? Yeah. The problem with the left hemisphere is that it is plagued by unknown unknowns. It doesn't know what it is, it doesn't know. And that is a grave deficit. The right hemisphere is aware, there's always much more, but the left hemisphere is not. And that's because it operates in it has set up, if you like, a system for validating reality and things that don't fit its system either simply are denied uh, or um, don't exist. So a very nice experiment was done in which people were asked to say whether or not a syllogism was true or not. And uh, to remind your listeners, a syllogism is a, a series of uh, statements leading to a conclusion. So... Um, a major premise is that all men are mortal. A minor premise is that Socrates is a man. The conclusion is Socrates is mortal. That's a typical syllogism. But in these cases, the syllogisms had something slightly wrong with them. One of the premises was true, but the other premise was false. They wanted to see how the two hemispheres approach this problem. And they were able to do this experimentally by knocking out one hemisphere at a time. Mm -hmm. And they asked this question of the person, first of all, in the intact situation, then in the left hemisphere only situation, and then in the right hemisphere situation. And what they found was this, that one example is um, all monkeys climb trees, which is fine. Uh, the porcupine is a monkey, which is not so fine. Uh, the conclusion, the porcupine climbs trees, 
is this true or not? Now, actually, between you and me, there are porcupines that climb trees, <laughs> annoyingly. But this wasn't known to the Russian investigators <coughs> who did this work. And they did it with, I think, 15 individuals 10 times over. And what they found was a completely staggering division in the way in which they answered this question. So when they were asked the question as an intact whole brain, they replied, no, it's not right because the porcupine isn't a monkey and so the conclusion is false. When the left hemisphere of the same person, not aggregated data, but the very same person on another occasion was asked the very same question, the left hemisphere almost invariably said, yes, it's correct. And when they said, but isn't it wrong? Don't you know the porcupine's not a monkey? The person would say sort of sheepishly, well, yes, I know. And then they say, well, why is it true then? They say, because that's what it says on this piece of paper. And then when they asked the person in the right hemisphere only situation, they said, well, of course it's not right because the porcupine's nothing like a monkey. So what you're really seeing is two kinds of idea of truth. The left hemisphere idea of truth is what it says on this piece of paper. So I have a completely hermetic schema of the world in which everything is accounted for. And if it says something that doesn't fit, then we, we don't refer to reality outside of this schema that we have. Our theory, our model, our map is what we refer to. Now, that's pretty important because it seems to me that often nowadays what is happening is that people have a model, a theory or a schema of how the world is, which is not at all how it is. If you opened your eyes and, and looked for an instant, you'd see the world is nothing like that. But it's how it should be according to their theory. And so when they're presented with evidence that it doesn't work like their theory says it should, um, they deny the reality of the evidence that is being brought to bear. Instead, they say, no, 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 according to my plan here, this is definitely the conclusion. Just to spell it out for our listeners a little bit about what are some of the particular intellectual or ideological standpoints that you see to be characteristic of this way of thinking. Is empirical science, for example, part of the, the makeup, a certain contemporary approach to science anyway? I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but just to, so we can start to yeah. see the way in which the limited yeah. view yeah. may be much more present than people may think. Well, first of all, just let me set us a bit of a scene here. The right hemisphere is interested in reality as it is tested on the pulse of experience. Mm -hmm. It is therefore empirical. It is therefore interested in actually not just what it says in this book, but going out there and looking at what mm -hmm. the world is like. Now, it's mm -hmm. always said that this is the great thing about the Renaissance, was that we moved from a world in which one discovered what the world was like out of a book to one in which you actually went out into the fields and forests and found out what it was like. And that was the beginning of the scientific uh, revolution. Now... To that extent, science is incredibly valuable because mm. it actually gives us some bearing on what reality mm. is. Um, so the right hemisphere is empirical. It's aware that nothing is certain because, as I say, it's always seeing that everything is only a partial view, that it's changing, that it's evolving. The left hemisphere sees things as fixed and certain and categorical black and white either or. It therefore is frustrated when somebody says, but it's sometimes like this in this context. In another context, it's not like that at all. To this extent, it's like this. But viewed with this lens, it's not like that. So you've got 
And there are evolutionary reasons why this is the case. The left hemisphere has to be dogmatic because it's the one that helps us grab things. So it's no good when you're trying to uh, catch a rabbit going sort of, well, it could be a rabbit or it might <laughs> not be a rabbit. You know, the right hemisphere is what Robin Chandran calls the devil's advocate. It's always going, yes, but it might not be like that. Whereas the left hemisphere is going, what do you mean? It's that. That's what it is. It's, the left hemisphere is quick and dirty. It jumps to conclusions and it loves to put things in boxes, categories, so categories are more important than unique cases. The context is shared away, so the thing is viewed entirely in the abstract. Whatever the truth is, it's certain, and it gets very angry in defending it. Now, you know, just in putting this in as background, this is a fact that it is not true, as used to be said, that the right hemisphere is emotional and the left mm. hemisphere is calm and reasonable. Yeah. The left hemisphere is anything but calm and reasonable. In fact, the emotion that most strongly lateralizes is anger. And guess what? It lateralizes to the left hemisphere. So the left hemisphere is quick and dirty, quickly defensive, categorical in its way of looking at things, shears context off, is not empathic with individual instances, um, and is far too sure that things are like its theory. The right hemisphere is tentative by comparison, is likely to say yes, well, sometimes, but not always. And it could be looked like that in some cases, but not in others. Or actually, if you test this against the empirical reality, you'll find that your theory doesn't stand up. So you've got this pitched, not exactly battle, because it shouldn't be a battle. In the normal human experience, these things should be able to calibrate one another. And, mm. and indeed, the, the master, which is the right hemisphere, should be the one the left hemisphere is serving, as you say. So it, it, it's a useful tool, but it's not the one that really understands what's going on. It's the right hemisphere that understands. If I could give you a quick and dirty sort of little catchphrase or, 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 or what do you call it, or soundbite, mm. the, the left hemisphere is there to help us manipulate the world, but not to understand it. The right hemisphere is there to help us understand the world, not to manipulate it. Now, if you look at many developments in current intellectual life, it seems to me that we can see what I would, if I'm right, that we're now living in a more left hemisphere dominated world, there would be lots of things to find. Things would become more abstract. They'd be run according to algorithms that the computer could carry out. They wouldn't be matters of human judgment. They wouldn't involve wisdom. They would rely purely on information not on even knowledge, never mind wisdom, which is far too human and uncertain. Um, things would be viewed in a bureaucratic way, in a categorical way, in a this is right, that is wrong attitude. Um, there would be a need for control because the left hemisphere likes to control things. It controls the right hand with which it grabs things. It, it's the bit that says, oh, I've grasped things. It actually loves things to be certain and in its possession. The right hemisphere is not so interested in power. It's interested in understanding the real situation. Now, when I look at lots of the debates that go on now, I see a complete lack of nuance in the discussion. And this could be about many of the controversial psychosocial issues that are popular now and that people like Jordan Peterson have, have taken up. Um, I see... Uh, 
people attempting to make an argument that it's more complicated than you're saying, that it's that the realities, as it were, determined by science are not in keeping with your particular model that you're in love with, and that you're not really prepared to listen to people who have a different point of view from your own, because you just know you're right. Um, and in the past, no doubt, in politics, you can't make any kind of parallel between left brain and right brain and left and right in politics. Sometimes, if you like, the left in politics has its left brain types, it has its right brain types. The right in politics has its left brain types and its right brain types. So let me make that very clear. This is not a political yeah, matter. Right, of course not. But, but yeah. in all those cases, at the moment, there is a kind of... I don't know what you'd like to call it, but a kind of neoliberal consensus, which is very much what academics now largely espouse and teach, uh, which is really not based any longer on the consensus of experience, the wisdom of our culture, but has suddenly, in the space of perhaps 10 years or 15 years maximum, thrown out things that we used to believe and that our forebears believed as simply... Uh, completely untrue and have stood them on their heads so that the things that were, as it were, inadmissible 20 years ago are now compulsory. Now, this is a very odd thing to do. Of course, everything changes and a, a lively and healthy society has never the idea that it's got the last word on something. So it should always be open to this process of evolution, of flow, of change. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about dogmatic elimination of a certain point of view and the substitute by a completely absolute version of another point of view. And this is not a welcome development. And it's antipathetic to everything that the academic life depends on, which must be respect for different points of view. And I, let, let me just put a, a light on this from, if you like, the difference between the model of the machine and the model of a person. I alluded slightly earlier to the idea that when we are addressing a machine, our question is, what does it do? How much of it does it do and how fast does it do it? Now, when you're dealing with a human situation, say a doctor or a social worker or whatever, of course, it's important what they do. But to ask how much can they get done in a certain time, how fast do they do and how much ground do they cover is in a way to battle against the good practice of medicine or social work or being a librarian or making pottery or whatever it is you do. Anything that is human is not best served by this particular model. But even more than that, the key question is not what, but how. It's not what is going on here, but how is it being done? Uh, the reason why I think people made the mistake that there aren't any differences between the cerebral hemispheres, because there are massive and obvious ones. And if somebody has a stroke in the left hemisphere and have a stroke in the exact mirror image place in the right hemisphere, the consequences will be completely different. And there's not a single neurologist anywhere in the world that will deny that. So they're clearly not the same. So how did we get ourselves into that mess? The answer was we aggregated data and we said... Well, the left hemisphere does reason, but so does the right. The left hemisphere does language, so does the right. The left hemisphere is involved in emotion, so does the right. The question is, what do they do? They do everything. But like people who do everything, they do them in a very different way. So Einstein and Donald Trump do things in different ways. 
Um, not least because one of them's dead. But, you know, I mean, basically, they are obviously have lots of things in common, but it's the differences that are often most significant. So I want to bring that and apply it to intellectual life. It seems to me that the mistake is to say there are certain things you can't say. Mm. In my view, there is nothing that you can't say, provided it is said in a respectful way. And some people will argue that there are certain things that can't be said because intrinsically they're disrespectful, even if they're factually true. But I think once you start going down that line, you are closing down with probably very deleterious consequences down the line. You're closing down um, arguments and you're leading to the build-up of mistrust, um, a huge disjunct between what people say in public, what they believe privately, a huge disjunct between the theory that dictates this and what they actually find when they lead their life. And that is not a help. You can't build a civilization on a lie. So we should be truthful with one another. We should say, I, I dislike what you're saying and I'm going to try and find reasons why it's wrong, but I'm going to talk to you in a reasonable way, respecting the fact that you're an intelligent person like myself and I hope you will talk to me in that way. Now, those are the ground rules, but the ground rule can never be we can't talk about this. However, even in great universities, which used to be the envy of the world, like my own alma mater, Oxford, and even more, I'm afraid, in Cambridge, we're now finding, and no doubt in many American universities, um, and I, I, we don't need even to mention Evergreen, but there are many other cases, where some kind of censorship has gone on, which has utterly destroyed the fabric of academic life and substituted assertion of ill-founded opinions and views as though they were what the carrying on of the passing on of the best and the most refined of what has come from human knowledge, human experience, and a great deal of self-sacrifice by people who came before us, the tradition. Now, a tradition is not a fossil. A tradition is never static. A tradition is living. It's always changing. But it has to change in a certain way. It can't just be forced to change by cutting it off. It's like a plant. A plant can be made to grow. If it's allowed to flourish, it can be trained in many different directions. If you just grab it and snap it off the stem and say, I'm putting it over there, it dies. And now you've got no plant. Now, a culture is like that. We simply can't destroy it. We must shepherd it carefully and with a great deal of thought towards the things, as we always have done, that we as a people believe to be the most valuable things we can offer in what we leave behind to our children. There's so much in there, thank you, that I, that I want to re return to. So when we speak about the, the you might say, a reductive mode of thinking or perceiving the world or of making the world as associated with the left hemisphere, one of the characteristics of that that you bring out in your book is that it's convinced that it's right. And unwilling or uninterested, unable even to hear that there could be another way of seeing. And so this sort of cocksure certainty that what I see is the hole that there is to be seen, full stop. 
it seems to me that we see that in our contemporary world in in, mm. in all kinds of different ways. But, Absolutely. But there are a couple of ways that we might we might fruitfully discuss. One of one of which you've already brought up the the sense in which certain things are not allowed to be said because they might be thought to be offensive or 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 to, to challenge the immediacy of my identity or, or or whatever. So that's one level. We see that in terms of. Uh, speech codes and uh, a certain suffocating atmosphere of opinion that that is perhaps especially <laughs> dominant in college campuses but not only there so that's one form of that and uh, it and and I think you very wonderfully bring out the ways in which you might say that makes movement beyond the immediacy of what you see impossible because you're defining that very movement is out of bounds so I think from that point of view I've had a pleasure of speaking with Douglas Murray recently about a book he's written recently, The Madness of Crowds. I, I know the book. Yeah. So, so there's a profound sense in which, from that standpoint, education is impossible because education in its most fundamental nature is about moving to see more than you currently see. Exactly. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's out of bounds. We can return to speak about that box, that particular approach to life through the, the immediacy of our subjectivity, let's say, that we see often on college campuses. But there are many other boxes that we might speak about. You might say boxes beyond which you are not allowed to speak. And it seems to me that one of the boxes we're living in very predominantly is a kind of a reductivist materialism. So that... The whole realm of truth or beauty or goodness, Mm. as if those things can be spoken about as really real, Mm. is outside the bounds of a certain kind of thinking that is very widespread. Does that seem right to you? And how would you describe that reduction or that position that reduces the world in those ways? Oh, there's just so much I could say about that. Um, First off, I'm writing a book at the moment, probably going to be called The Matter with Things, uh, which is a pun on several levels. Um, in which I am suggesting that the reductionist materialist viewpoint that we are being sold is is neither clever nor insightful. Uh, it's actually profoundly destructive and it deprives people of some of the most important aspects of living a life. So it's, it's really, really essential. Um, Let me also emphasize the degree to which this uh, refusal to see what you don't actually believe to be the case goes, Um, because I want to just make this very, very vivid for a moment. When somebody has a right hemisphere stroke, they can have very often a paralysis of their left arm. And you can have somebody come in. Every medic in the world has seen this. Somebody comes into hospital overnight. They've had a right hemisphere stroke. In the morning, they've got a paralyzed left arm. You go to see them in the morning on the ward round. You say, how are you? And they say, oh, I'm fine. And you say, oh, good. Uh, No problems then moving anything? No, no, none at all. Uh, Any problem moving your left arm, for example? No, no, fine. Well, could you move it for me? And they go, there. Nothing actually moves. And then if you bring the arm round in front of them and say, there, move that, they say, oh, that, that's not my arm. That belongs to the bloke in the next bed. Now, these are not psychotic patients. These are not mad. They're just acting only on the left hemisphere. What it doesn't actually believe is part of its world, it just denies exists. And I could give you hundreds of examples. Denial 
is a major issue. Now, in the modern world, we see this time and again. Mm. The evidence is presented and people say, I don't believe it, I don't want to know it. And one of the ones that matters a great deal to me is climate change and the whole business of our destruction and despoliation of the natural world, our extinction of ways of life that have lasted for tens, hundreds of thousands of years in harmony with nature that are being wiped out. And people just say, it's not happening, or I don't care, or it'll, it'll not cause any problems. But they're not actually listening to scientists who are telling them that it is going to cause a problem. In fact, it's already probably causing such a huge problem that we now are going to find it very hard to evade dire consequences. So that, that just shows you how bad this whole business of denial is when it comes to the left hemisphere. And what we need in education is not to reinforce certain ways of looking at the world which are themselves largely in denial, feeding children a dogma. But the whole purpose of education is to teach people to see beyond the things that they believe to be true now. And I don't think that there should be any school in the West, where a child should go to school and leave without having been trained to argue forcefully for something they believe. And then they say, that's fine, that's very good. Now argue for the exact opposite point of view as passionately and we'll mark you on how well you come up with arguments for the opposite point of view. Mm. Now, I believe that is at the core of education. Mm. And it's not actually what's going on. When I was at school, education was a much more flexible thing. It was much less driven by curricula. I may have been lucky in that I had very good teachers and more or less what we were taught went with the passions of the teachers. And actually, you will never go wrong if you, if you have good teachers who know a lot of stuff and you allow them to talk passionately about the things that impassion them. You communicate and you teach a way of thinking about the world which is Ah, I see. On the one hand this, on the other hand that. There are different points of view. At other times people saw, and they weren't stupid, they saw a world in which the things I now believe to be true were completely wrong. And it's no good me just saying, oh, they were primitive or something. Actually, these people were highly educated, highly intelligent people. We need to respect that and know about it. And if we don't know about it, then we're going to fall into the problem of the vast areas of ignorance that we're not even aware exist. We're not even aware of the extent of our ignorance. Now, now that, is, that is where we're at at the moment in many areas, it seems to me. And we've lost the confidence that should be part of the great institutions that actually keep a, a, a civilization and a culture going, such as universities and places of learning, seats of learning, in which those who should really be helping young people to see what a, what a fantastically interesting, awe-inspiring business learning about life is and how many surprises there are in it and how often you have to revise your thinking. Instead, they're bowing to what are effectively, you know, not much more than children, really. Um, especially in the lives that people live now, where people grow up very slowly because they're not actually ex experiencing the sort of things that Victorian children had to learn about very early. Mm. And they're, they're actually, as it were, the, 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 the people who are there to learn are the people who are telling the people who should be teaching them what's what. Well, to me, that doesn't make any sense. Yes. 
That's, my goodness, that's very powerful and a very vivid account of a certain kind of reduction of ourselves that is very dominant in, in, in education. And, and just to add to what you've said, it, it certainly seems to me that broadly speaking, our intellectual culture has put itself in a box such that the vast amount of things that are actually meaningful to human life are considered to be unreal or fundamentally unknowable. So therefore not of interest to our intellectual life. (laughs) And that seems to me to map on quite well to the paradigm, as it were, that you Mm. wonderfully offer in, in your book of the emissary mastering the master from its very reduced and limited, however useful standpoint. There must be, I think, quite a profound sense in which the malaise of our current world, and of course there's lots written on the malaise of modernity and on the, let's say, the the poverty of a of a of a simply instrumental rationality. Yep. You know, Heidegger and others have written about this, but there are, there are a great deal of of let's say diagnosis sure. uh, of that. What I am most curious about, because I think that though I would love for us to be able to go for many hours on in just this conversation to go much further into the the dynamic of the problem. I'm very, very interested to ask you about how one moves out of the problem. So let's just accept for the sake of this conversation that we're starting from within the domination of the master by the emissary Mm. and that the various characteristics of the world that you've described might be understood as a consequence of a very reduced world that thinks it is it is the whole, but is not the whole. Exactly. I want to get at this a number of ways. I want to get at this at the level of the individual, but also at the level of a broader culture. I've done a bit of work on a late Roman philosopher, sort of theologian, poet, musician named Boethius. Yes. And one of the things that brought me to Boethius and to the work that I later did on him, which had to do with patterns in the poetry mm. and the way in which, um, well, just to very quickly sketch this relative to the things that I want to ask you about, The Consolation of Philosophy is a book written by a man who's lost everything, and he's in a state of being unable to speak, unable to recognize himself. And then this woman named Philosophy comes in and throughout the course of this beautiful, exquisite work of literature, mm. recollects him to a full sense of himself. Yeah. And one of the things that is remarkable about this book is that it has an astounding variety of poetic rhythms. And what I discovered is that there is an absolutely breathtaking system according to which these rhythms are repeated as patterns, and the patterns are interwoven within other patterns. So my argument in brief is that this prisoner, in and through hearing these patterns is recollected to the sense of the whole. Mm. And of course, philosophically, this involves all kinds of questions about the relation between time and eternity and the relation between part and whole. But I'd like to approach this matter from a number of different angles with you, if we Mm. may, over the next little while, uh, both neurophysiologically or relative to what we we, we know about the the brain, Mm. uh, but we might also speak about these things through concentrically larger circles, let's say. How does one move from this reduced view to one that has a greater sense of wholeness, away from the reduction towards one in which one has a complementary relation between these two ways of seeing or making the world? Well, obviously, once you lose knowledge, it's very hard to regain it because you're Mm. no longer aware you've lost it. And there tends to be a one-way path in this, which I've traced three times in the West in the second part of The Master and His Emissary, 
that actually civilizations don't recover. Once the left hemisphere takes over, um, effectively the civilization declines and dies. That's not a very optimistic uh, <laughs> um, prognosis. But I suppose if we were... There are a number of things, I suppose, one could say. One is that it's very difficult to predict the future and that human beings are enormously resourceful. And there must have been many times when we thought, you know, this is this is the end, but it wasn't. Um, mind you, the same things didn't apply in those cases that now, unfortunately, do. But it may be that when things reach a certain degree of crisis, but it may take a devastating crisis in which there may be a breakdown of civil order and we may have to go back to different ways of living altogether. If it comes to that, I think people will be shocked into seeing and knowing that the extraordinarily thin gruel that they have been fed as the reality of this world is no sustaining pottage that they can live on and they will find something new. I think one of the things that would happen under those circumstances is that we would be closer to nature. And I, I think I would emphasize that nature is one of the very most important... Well, first of all, it's one of the most profound. We don't really know what this living world that we're part of is, that we emerge from and return to. But whatever it is, it speaks to us of things that are far beyond uh, whatever a reductionist picture suggests. And by reductionist, I mean the idea that you find out what something is by taking it apart, you know? Of course, it is true that sometimes, it, it, with a mechanism particularly, which is what we're used to making, um, it's useful to take things apart and see the bits and so on. But the whole is not just the bits put together in, in a certain way. I mean, an example I would, I would give is, is music. You know, uh, what is music? Let's find out what music is. I want to know what music is. I can tell you what it is. It's made of notes. And um, notes, OK, well, let's inspect a note. Let's take a note. Let's take an A. What is it? Nothing. What does it mean? Nothing. Well, let's take another one, B flat. What does that mean? Nothing. Take 35,000 of these and you've got Bach B minor mass. How did that happen? Because it means everything. And you might say, well, it can't be in the notes. But there's only the notes in silence, the gaps that the, the between the notes in one way or another. But the gaps and the silences can't mean anything either, according to the reductionist position. Yeah, yeah. So you can't account for the emergence of something that has massive meaning from connection. Now, actually, I argue that connection is primary. Uh, I, this is something we won't have time to go into, but I argue that relation is primary or prior to relata, that the things that are related are not there and then are brought into relation, but that there are relations, and out of these relations emerge what we call the things that are related. Uh, that may be going into too much. No, not, not at all. In fact, I'd, I'd like to pick up from that, Ian, by reading, uh, and especially a beautiful sentence, uh, or a couple of sentences uh, from the Master and his emissary on music. And I'm going to pick up in the middle of a sentence when you say, that music does not so much free time from temporality as bring out an aspect that is always present within time. It's intersection within a moment which partakes of eternity. 
Similarly, it does not so much use the physical to transcend physicality or use particularity to transcend the particular as bring out the spirituality latent in what we conceive as physical existence and uncover the universality that is, as Goethe spent a lifetime trying to express, always latent in the particular. Yes. It is also a feature of music in every known culture that it is used to communicate with the supernatural, with whatever is by definition above, beyond, other than yeah. ourselves. Yeah. Um, you, you very frequently come back to music in this book. I take it because of the way in which when we, when we are following a line of music, we have to have, you know, the music means nothing in just the second or the millisecond, as you say, that the the yeah it's what, not composed of slices. Out, that's right. Outside of the whole of which it is a part. Mm. Um, so so a number of questions come to me to bring out this dynamic. You know we can speak about you know the big picture cultural, mm. um, cultural geopolitical, artistic, uh, educational forces, economic and otherwise environmental, uh, that must surely be at stake in our let's say reweaving a a a whole cloth or putting together, developing a standpoint from which human beings can more adequately flourish. But let's approach this in the level, in the simplest, and it's not simple, but at the most particular level of the individual. Let's say, you know, one is a parent of children and one is, one is looking to cultivate in them a healthy and happy life what are the kinds of experience or uh, education or encounters with the world that seem to bring about mm. this sense of the part within the whole in the individual that facilitate or, or bring about this uh, unity between the hemispheres? Well, you, you may be asking me more than I can answer because... It's one thing to see what's going wrong and another to say, I know how to fix this. Um, and I don't pretend to know how to fix it, although I'm a psychiatrist and I know that even if you do know what somebody needs to do, there's no use in telling them when you first meet them. You need to lead them to a point where they can see for themselves, ah, what I need mm. to do is this. So I believe my contribution here, if there is one, is to raise people's awareness of the ways in which we're getting things wrong. And that it's up to the vast number of imaginative people who can use that to find ways of putting it into action that may produce um, a healthier society. But there are certain things, I mean, there are certain obvious things that I think used to obtain more strongly and used to hold um, the world together in a way that we've lost. Um, one I've already mentioned, which is the, the fact that until probably 100 years ago, 98% of humanity lived deeply embedded in and surrounded by nature, and that that is no longer true. Um, perhaps only half, if that. Uh, and that is a catastrophic loss because it speaks to you, as I say, of a rhythm, of a flow, of a, of a network, of a living fabric of which one is part, which is one of the things you're talking about. Another would be to make sure that, um, which is again exactly the opposite to the currently popular trend, to 
push STEM subjects. Now, STEM subjects are important, don't get me wrong. And I'm certainly not for dumbing anything down. I, I believe that children should be stretched. Believe me, the humanities can stretch. You know, philosophy is not a walk in the park. Uh, and a lot of science boils down to learning procedures in a somewhat mindless way. That's not what good science is, but that's what passes for a scientific education often. So it's very important that the humanities should form a big part of the way children are educated. They should read not just fashionable things that happen to be on the tick list now because they were written by, we haven't had enough books written by a certain category of people. What we should be looking at is the really, the things that have stood the test of time and that people, you know, generations of highly intelligent people have thought were powerful. I'm not saying don't go on and learn lots of interesting new stuff that comes from your culture, but what you mainly need to know at school is the stuff that you won't find on social media, that you won't find by, um, you know, your smartphone. But you actually need to spend time and attention to them. And we need to change the way in which we attend. So we need to slow down the process of thinking and living, not so that we think more slowly, but that we actually think at all. At the level at which people lead their lives now, their thought processes are fragmented and nothing deep can actually settle, which is why people need everything condensed to a few phrases or whatever. Nothing seriously important can be condensed to a few phrases, which is why we get then the problem of extreme positions, because people articulate a very brief position. And often there would be many riders to it that are sheared off by the way in which we now communicate. So we would learn to attend, to be silent. Children at school should be learned to, to be silent and be at peace with silence and to discover the things that come only through attending um, open awareness without preconception. They should spend more time with music, with drama, things like that. I think religion should be... This is a difficult one. Certainly not neglected. Um, and I think that it's, it's wrong to think of religion as in any case a form of brainwashing. If you don't actually know what a religion is about, you can't actually make a decision for yourself about whether you want to pursue this more or not. So the information, at least, about what a religion is would help. Because in many of the debates about religion now, and I, I'm not arguing a case for any particular religion, and I, I don't go to a church or anything like that. But I do think that, first of all, it would be very hard to understand our culture if you don't understand the legacy of its primary religion in, in the West, which is Christianity, and learn from the other important spiritual traditions that are in the world, particularly, in, I believe, the Far Eastern ones. Um, so I think that awareness that there is more in this world than necessarily can be summed up in anything that we can uh, write propositionally in language, to be aware that our intuitions are not just, um, they can be false, of course, um, but then so can reasoning. Reasoning can lead you to very false conclusions. I mean, it hardly needs to be demonstrated, but it's very obvious. And I always 
you know, I'm very interested in and amused by uh, people like Kahneman and, and Tversky um, to the extent that I have often in the past used their material. It's very entertaining to demonstrate to people how they do misconstrue situations. But unfortunately, they've, whether willingly or unwillingly, given rise to a perception that somehow intuitions are ultimately untrustworthy. But I, I would put it like this. I can show you optical illusions that you simply cannot believe that, you know, two squares on a, on a checkerboard that look to be obviously different colours are exactly the same colour. So your eyes can be deceived, certainly. But because there are optical illusions, I don't say, well, that does it. I'm never going to look at anything again in my life. Of course, you need to use your eyes. And because there are in what I would call intuitive illusions, that very clever ones that Kahneman Tversky set up, doesn't mean to say that one should not ever listen to one's intuitions. And I believe that they're in harmony with reason, that people use their intuitions better if they're good at reasoning. And they reason better if they listen well to their intuitions, because reason is not just rationalizing in the way the machine would crank out a series of propositions. Reasoning is a process of blending uh, deep knowledge from experience, embodied knowledge, knowledge that even is hard to articulate but is very real, with whatever it is that can be uh, more explicitly um, elaborated in language, logically. And I think that the knowledge that there are things that can't be dealt with just in this rather superficial way um, is, is an important thing for children to come away with if they're going to make mature decisions as adults. And then I think awareness of the body, not as something that is antagonistic to the intellect. Uh, I'm afraid we owe this one to Plato. Um, but as something, as I was trying to say there, that the intellect and the body are in harmony with one another and that we don't find the things that transcend the body by turning our backs on the body, but by going through the body. And, and that all these things are a matter of bringing together the things that we now see as polar opposites and showing that actually they're part of a whole. And that if you want to understand one aspect of this polarity, you need to investigate the other. So again, not just the kind of simplistic idea, this is wrong, that is right, this is opposed to that, but what is being hidden by the way of thinking that I'm using? And the body is a very rich source of knowledge about things that are of the ultimate importance to any human being and yet cannot be easily articulated. For example, love. Love is, is it spiritual? It is. Is it emotional? It is. Is it physical? It is. It's all of these things. And if somebody who has never been in love says to me, what is love? I can't possibly tell them. I can't say anything useful. I, can't, I say unless you've experienced it, you will never know. And yet it's one of the most central things in the entirety of human experience. Time is similar. God is similar. These are not things that can be easily described in that way. So by shifting our intellectual debate away from 
not away from from the rational and certainly not away from science. I myself rely very heavily in making an argument on being reasonable, I hope, or using reason and using what science can offer to us, but also at the same time knowing that we have to have intuition and imagination and that, in fact, intuition and imagination need to be blended with science and reason for them to work well as science and as reason. You know, the great discoveries in science were not made by simply following what's called the scientific method. In fact, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been Poincaré, the French mathematician, who said that actually no mathematical discoveries have ever been made by following a logical sequence. And I I know uh, it's George uh, Gaylord Simpson who said that... um, Uh, scientists don't make discoveries usually by the scientific method. They have an insight. Often they do a lot of hard work in a kind of routine way. But when that insight comes to them, it comes in another form. As, for example, Einstein's thoughts came to him in the form of musical shapes. He would often play the piano and go, I've got it. And it might surprise people to know that Niels Bohr, you know, the the, the father of modern um, um, physics, really, of the um, quantum uh, mechanics of, of, of physics, uh, his notebooks contain no words or equations. They contain little pictures, which is really interesting. Mm. So that insights in these areas, and I've just written a piece actually for the Literary Review saying we've lost the idea of the geometry of thought, that thought is thought of as linear and nothing in this world is linear. There is nothing that is straight lined in in the natural world. There is nothing in space that is not curved and in our thought it is also curved, so that as you extend things, they don't get necessarily further away. They eventually curve around and begin to come together. And our experience goes in spirals. It doesn't actually go in in straight linear trajectories. We've lost this, and we've lost the ability to see how shapes can guide us towards insights. And our education, if it is making us believe that a good scientist and a good mathematician just do carry out rote procedures is killing mathematics, killing the imagination of a good scientist and a good mathematician. And that's an anti-education. Yes, I think um, there's so many rich things that we could turn to speak about here. Certainly, and I may have a somewhat different sense of the Greek philosophical tradition than you do, and we won't have time to get into that in much depth, but one thing that we can say with certainty is that one of the wonderful things that the the Greek and then Neoplatonic uh, and then into the Latin philosophical theological tradition gives us is is a sense of the different forms of human perception. So, you know, Boethius says this, in a certain sense he takes it up from Plato, you have sensation, imagination, rationality, and then what he calls intellect. And reason is that discursive movement in and through time, propositionally, or et cetera. For him, that would depend upon or be, you might say, illuminated by uh, a a higher sense of perception uh, of, you might say, of the whole. And I take it that what a great scientist or mathematician is doing in, in a moment when they speak about the flash of insight is there's a sense in which a whole is seen in its completeness that 
transcends the the movement. And I think one of the very rich things about the Greek intellectual tradition is the way in which it understands the possibility of our own forms of perception becoming more adequate. And so, you know, we have all these these wonderful images from uh, from the ancient world and from the Middle Ages. Uh, we, they talk about ascent and about uh, the itinerarium and about um, uh, uh, conversion and recollection and the movement towards a, a deeper self-awakening, let's say. In many of these great works of literature and philosophy, I would say, are designed specifically to bring about something of that movement in and through the reading of them. Um, so I'd like to ask you about that, that movement towards a more adequate standpoint. You know, one way that we might a- approach this is through the language of, of, of potentiality and actuality. Let's say we, we have it in our nature potentially mm. to have a, a fuller, more beautiful, richer, more vivid, uh, uh, more harmonious um, sense of ourselves and of the world and of others. Mm. Um, but it's, it's potential in the sense that it's not yet there, we, but there's ground yet to be covered. Do you have any thoughts, Ian, on, on how that can become more actual or, or generally speaking, thoughts on how what is potential is drawn out into actuality. I know you've you've written quite a bit in the la- in the language of let's say a kind of Hegelian language of of um, of opposition and division. Um, uh, in fact, I've, I've, I've actually thought about reading this lo- lovely just a, just a single sentence here, or from from the master and his emissary, just to uh, turn into this topic for a minute. Um, you know, nothing like touching on one of the hardest issues in all of philosophy in just a couple of minutes here, but. Um, um, you say, union cannot exist without separation and distinction, but separation and distinction are no use unless they form the prelude to a later, greater union or synthesis. Let me try this out on you. And I've, I've been speaking with a friend of mine recently about the conversion of human potential into actuality. And I'm very inspired by the way in which you articulate the, the fullness of things that the right hemisphere has the wholeness of things, and I take it that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that the the grasping of things that the that the that the left hemisphere is about, whilst it can go badly by reducing things into it's just this instrumental grasp of reality that cuts out the whole. In an ideal way, the forms of encounter that that uh, uh, can bring about can lead to a still richer sense of the whole. And uh, so you've, 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 you've written and, t- and talked about the way in which a certain opposition is necessary to awaken or deepen our sense of things. Could you say a word or two about that? Yes. Um, it, it, it forms a big part of what I've been writing recently. Um, and I don't know how I can do this quickly enough. Um, I think that my conclusion is that resistance is an essential aspect of creation, that nothing actually comes into fruition without encountering a degree of resistance, which can come out of itself, actually, as the flow of a stream can generate resistance 
within the banks of the river. And that resistance can cause a vertex to form. And that vertex is something that comes into being, can be photographed, has power, and then dissipates back into the water. It's not separate from the water, because for the while, that is the flow of the river. So resistance, uh, that, that's, that will sound very obscure, but I unpack that much more in what I'm writing. That effectively we need this process of um, a something that is overcome in order that something else should be. And you've alluded to the idea that we need both the one and the many, which is another huge philosophical mm. question that yeah. I've, yeah. I've frequently written about and have several chapters in my new book about that. But effectively what we need is the union of union and division. We don't want the division of union and division. So in a sense, union always in a way trumps division, but it needs division. Yes, And yes, in this yes. sense, the right and left yes. hemispheres yes. need one another. And the point about the story of the master and his emissary, uh, which is briefly about a, a wise spiritual master who realizes he can't do all the business of the community that he looks after, as it flourishes and grows. And so not only that he realizes he couldn't, but he shouldn't get involved in it if he's going to keep his important overview. So he appoints a bright subaltern, as it were, to go and do his work on his behalf. Um, but that bright guy is just not bright enough, doesn't realize that he doesn't really know half of anything, but he thinks he knows everything. That's where things go wrong. Now, the point there is that the master knows that he needs the emissary, but the emissary doesn't know he needs the master. And so the emissary is trying to divide from the master. But the master is trying to keep the two elements, the one that it actually he actually generated by appointing the emissary, but needs to keep the two together. Now, that is a rich metaphor, which could be unpacked by us over a week if we had time. But, mm. but, but I think I'm... I hope I'm touching on what yes. you're talking about. I also argue... Uh, perhaps rather controversially, that actuality is not necessarily more real than potentiality and that we need the collapse into actuality. But there's no reason to believe that that collapse into actuality is more real than the potential out of which it emerged. And here I would, with the blessing of half a dozen physicist friends by whom I, I run these ideas would refer to the well-known idea of the wave and the collapse into the particle, that um, what seems to happen at a certain moment, perhaps through observation it seems, is that a field of potential manifests itself in one very particular way. And in order for the world to be, to progress, to evolve, to flow, for creation to come into being, there needs to be this perhaps in some ways limiting process of collapse into the actual and specific but there's no reason to privilege that over the field of potential out of which it comes, because really it's only a reflection of one aspect of it. I don't know if that goes any way to answering the question you were asking. Well, we're, I know that we'll, we'll, we'll need to wrap up our conversation soon, but um, I want to draw out of just a couple of things out of what you've just said, and that is, um, you know, relative to potentiality and actuality, let's take an acorn. You know, an acorn is potentially an oak tree, uh, but it is not 
yet actually the oak tree. And it is not, you know, potentially an airplane or a glass of water or a light bulb or a, or a cat. It is potentially uh, the oak. And it takes certain forms of, of externality, you know, water and a good you know, sunshine, another a good lay in the ground in order for it to have a chance to grow into, into it being a being an oak. And if you move up a level of complexity, you can, you can take a little, I'm a, I know we're both dog lovers, you can take a little puppy uh, and you think about this puppy is potentially all the wonderful things that a dog can be, but it's not yet actually that. And it takes much more than just water and food and, and warmth. It takes affection and, and uh, patterns and uh, you know, the, all the various rich things that you do to make a puppy into a wonderful dog. And it's far more complex in that sense. But there are also forms of externality, externality that awaken what is intrinsically in its nature to become. And if you go up, of course, much you can see where I'm going to the level of the human being. You see you know, the little baby and all of the wonderful things that a human being can become. It takes certain forms of, of externality, you might say, of difficulty, of experience, let's say, uh, to awaken what is present in the, in, 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 in the human being potentially to make it actual. But we also know that it's not a foregone conclusion that everyone will, you might say, reach their potential. I mean, there are dogs that are maimed and neglected and abused, and there are comparatively human beings living in not only in materially in circumstances that are far from optimal, but also spiritually. And so, you know, we'll no doubt flag this for a future conversation. But one thing I find so very inspiring about your work is that you are pointing towards the potentiality for more adequate forms of understanding ourselves and for richer and fuller ways of bringing into being or into actuality. To read your work is itself to step back. It's, by the way, of course, it's a metaphor you often use in your writing. We need to step back for a minute. But to read your work is precisely to step back and to have a kind of recollective moment of what it would mean for us to move from part to whole, to regain a fuller view on what we are and and can be. So I'm very grateful to have had this chance to to, to speak with you here in in this sublimely beautiful place, in the inspiring context of your of your very own study. And I and I want to give you a chance before we conclude to share any last thoughts of this. What I hope is just a first conversation <laughs> before we conclude. Mm. Well, I think in in your last comments you alluded to two distinct things. One is potential and actuality, and the other is individuality or hekietas, uniqueness, quiddity, whatever you like to say, and more general. And I see the process of the cosmos as to the production of the unique mm. um, out of the general, and that this is part of whatever the cosmos is enriching its potential. Uh, I happen to see the cosmos as divine, not probably in a sense that many theologians would perhaps recognize, but some certainly do. Um, uh, 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 not, I, I'm not a pantheist, I'm a panentheist, which is a small syllable, but a huge difference, because it's not just God is the sum of all these things, but that all these things exist within God, and that God is in all these things. Um, and that the process is one both of uh, enlarging potential and collapsing it into actuality and unfolding what is particular uh, 
into a now enriched greater whole, which never stops. So the cosmos is an endless process of consciousness coming to know itself or of God coming to know God's self, depending on how you want to phrase it. May I ask you, just to conclude that magnificently, let's say, pregnant uh, way of describing things, does what you have just said mean that in some sense God is coming to know himself in our coming to know ourselves and in the unfolding of all those particularities into themselves? Absolutely. And indeed, if you go back to um, Meister Eckhart and uh, von Reisbruck, uh, you find that they are actually saying that God is in the creation, is knowing the creation and knowing himself and that we know God and know ourselves in, in God. So it's a very difficult thing to articulate, but I think it's an ancient and profound uh, insight and what has really excited me in what I've been looking at recently is the richness of overlap between different spiritual traditions who saw the same deep insights into the structure of reality, uh, ranging across Buddhism and Taoism on one hand, uh, the Jewish Kabbalah uh, on another, um, the rich Christian tradition, aspects of Hindu cosmology, um, and so on. So I think that uh, that is a journey that we can all learn from and a very rich one. The note you've just struck there is to affirm the integrity of the unfolding of life that each of us is in the midst of every day. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood, and my guest today was the psychiatrist, philosopher, and literary scholar, Dr. Ian McGilchrist. If you'd like to learn more about his work on these questions, consider picking up a copy of The Master and His Emissary. I should also mention that there's an elegant little introduction to that book, also by Ian McGilchrist, entitled Ways of Attending. And finally, there's a documentary film about McGilchrist's work entitled The Divided Brain, which, by the way, has some spectacular footage near his home on the Isle of Skye. If you like, you can subscribe to this podcast on all the usual podcast apps. Upcoming episodes include conversations with Nobel laureate in economics, Vernon Smith, the Scottish sculptor, Sandy Stoddart, and the late genius mathematician and polymath, Freeman Dyson. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.